0: you are listening to the in context podcast hello and welcome to uh, another edition of the in context podcast uh, today we are joined by dr robert smith jr uh, a preacher and professor from uh, the united states uh, welcome and thank you very much for joining us dr robert smith
1: thank you brother williamson it's a blessing to be here sir
0: thank you very much a, b- a blessing to have you uh, My face is red and I'm sweating a little bit. It's the hottest day of the year in the UK. (laughs) I've been playing soccer with some of the men in the community and I'm too old to be playing soccer, so (laughs) I've got a towel.
1: (laughs) I understand it.
0: Great. Thank you. Yeah, the the reason why I've invited you onto the podcast is I've been blessed by uh, listening to uh, many of your sermons, I've read your book, uh, the doctrine that Dances, and i'm excited to uh, listen to your preach and i was excited reading your book because your book sounds like you <laughs> if you've heard you preaching when i read the book the book actually i can i can hear you uh, speaking and, and you speak with so much passion and that is something that is lacking in a lot of the preaching in in the uk so what is the the overriding passion uh, when you preach what causes that passion
1: Well, passion for me is not something that is put in uh, to someone based upon studying the mechanics of preaching. Hmm. It's something that is released from within. That is when my mind understands the revelation that's in the text, Hmm. then my passion is ignited. It's, It's not something that's necessarily vocal or physical uh, that's demonstrated by gestures but it's it's being married to the text reading the text until um i no longer have the text the text has me hmm. so when i see what god is saying and understand what he wants me to do and i know that god says this is my clear word, my passion is turned on. It's, it's Jeremiah chapter 20, verse nine. Uh, I said, I would not speak any more in his name, but his word, There's the key. His word was in my heart, like fire shut up in my bone. His word, then the fire, not the fire then the word, no. It's the word that ignites the fire. Mm -hmm. Like fire shut up in my bones and I was weary of holding it in. Indeed, I could not. I could not uh, withhold it any longer. So Mm -hmm. that's that's important to me, that revelation produces relevance, not the other way around. The revelation of the word produces the relevance that the word wants to bring into the context of the community of people that you're preaching to. Mm -hmm. So the Bible doesn't need anything put into it to make it come alive. The Bible is already alive. Oh. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
0: And, and, and you can see as well, so many of my favorite preachers are, are not just mature uh, in years, but m- mature in the faith. And that word, uh, that passion m- must have something to do with the years of studying God's word and knowing and, and, and loving Jesus. So how old were you when you first became a Christian and, and, and how were you saved?
1: I was seven years old when I first became a Christian. Hmm. I was saved under the preaching ministry of Dr. Elijah Lee Alexander from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Of course, he was pastoring our church in Cincinnati, Ohio at that time, the Rose Chapel Missionary Baptist Church. And I listened to him preach as a seven-year-old. Obviously, I didn't understand the depth of the doctrinal uh, proclamation that I understand now, and I'm still understanding what I'll never fully understand because the Bible is incomprehensible in terms of mining, uh, the depth of the riches of its profundity. You never get to the bottom of it. Oh, the heights, the depth, the breadth, the width of the love of God. I mean, you, you just can't. So it's always an investigation. Uh, and so I heard him preach and his preaching always included um, this idea of theology of the cross and the theology of glory. Hmm. Crucifixion, resurrection, always, always. I don't care if he's preaching on tithing. (laughs) I don't care if he was preaching on thou should not uh, commit adultery. I don't care what it was. It was always going to be a theologia um, crucis, uh, and a theologia gloria, theology of the cross, theology of glory. Mm-hmm. That was foundational for his preaching because he understood what Paul had expressed in an entire chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ be not crucified and risen from the dead, then all of our preaching is in vain. Mm-hmm. And so that was foundational. The, the, they represented the twin pillars. I believe that faith comes by hearing, scripture says, in Romans 10, 17, and hearing by the word of God, by that simple faith in the profundity of the gospel, which I'm still preaching and can't st- and cannot um, completely understand God's grace for me, a sinner, unworthy, undeserving, and yet I have to preach it because it's, it's the best news in the world. I personally believe that when we are in the eschaton in eternity, we will still marvel uh, about God's grace. So I believe that, and I came forward, and that uh, in those days, you would come forward and make your profession of faith and respond to the gospel. That's what happened to me, and I was saved uh, by faith uh, through the grace of God and uh, became Cognizant that God was doing something with me at a very, very early age, Uh, accepted my calling, which took place uh, before I was even conceived, according to Jeremiah 1. Before you were even uh, born uh, and conceived, I knew you and ordained you to be a prophet to the nation. So I, uh, I accepted my calling at age 17, and that's been uh, almost it'll be 55 years july the 3rd so that's been a long time ago and god has um done exceeding abundantly above all i could ask to think he really really has and it's just a real honor to represent him and that's the reason why i accepted your invitation because it gives me an opportunity to brag about jesus <laughs>
0: awesome awesome and uh so so what kind of in environment did did you you grow up in? Your your background we uh, are a church in a, an area of high poverty. It's it's one of uh, the poorest towns in the whole of the United Kingdom. It is the poorest town in in England, and many of our churches are are shutting down. Uh, Christianity in, in our area is probably two percent of people profess to. Uh, be be born again Christians and regularly attend church. So the area where we are we we have very little Christian influence, very little training. Uh, if there is a church, they're often without a pastor. So what kind of an environment did you grow up in? Was it uh, a godly place? Was there many churches? Was there opportunities to train and 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 how did you progress within your ministry?
1: The church community in which I grew up in uh, was a um, multi-present church. I mean, churches all over the community. Church was the center of the community. Hmm. Everything that happened, uh, basically, uh, took place as a result of the church. Recreation. You went to the the church, recreation. Youth groups, Hmm. church. If you wanted to date a young lady, you went to the church. Uh, the church was everything. Uh, a black community, African American, um, uh, was uh, the, was a church in which I, I attended. Um, uh, the, the the church, I would say that particular community I grew up in was poor. Mm not as poor probably as what you're talking about, but um, my mother and father worked. We rented our houses. People rented in that particular area, not owned, but rented. Um, We went to a a school, African-American, the churches, as I said, were African-American. Not a, a great deal of sloth or laziness, These were industrious people. Uh, They were people who had, uh, many of them, migrated from the South, Uh, Georgia, Tennessee, Mississippi, Arkansas, um, because they wanted a better life. And so during the 1920s, the time of the great migration of African-Americans from the South to the North, seeking a better life, uh, my mother and father, uh, came actually to Cincinnati, Ohio, where I live and have lived now for 68 years. Uh, they came um, from Knoxville, Tennessee. That's where we were born. That is, that's where I and my siblings were born. My mother and father were from Cincinnati, from from um, Georgia, and so this was a community in which a great deal of pride uh, was taken in in terms of people owning something, having something. We didn't have a car. My family didn't have a car until I was um, a grown man. Uh, we used the city transit. We walked, um, we took cabs, we rode buses, uh, et cetera. Uh, and so that's the kind of community it, it, it was. Church was everything. We'd, we'd go to, we'd get up and we'd take our baths in a tin tub on Saturday night, we'd be in Sunday school at nine o'clock uh, to about nine, about ten fifteen. Sunday school would be and church would end would start morning worship one service, ten thirty, and we it may last to one o'clock, two and a half hours. We'd be there a long time. Have dinner the afternoon after the service, the morning service was over, uh, in and, and it had uh, service at three thirty. That's two more hours. Then we'd have about six o'clock, what we call BYPU, Baptist Young People's uh, Union. And then after that, on the first Sunday, we'd have um, BTU, Baptist Training Union. Then after that, we'd have communion. So you literally talked about from Sunday school to communion, which might end at nine, nine to nine on um, many of the Sundays. That was, that was church. You went to church then, you had three services. You ate dinner that afternoon at church. Church was everything for us. Yeah, so um, very serious about Christianity and about the Baptist faith then, um, and also very serious about life. I can just remember uh, going, the Sabbath was important. You didn't go to the picture shows or the movie theaters, as we call them today, on Sunday. No, in fact, you didn't even dance as far as rock and roll. That's worldly. You don't do that. Christians don't do that. And the way that the women were dressed, they would wear long dresses and so forth and so on. The church governed all that stuff. Yeah. Wow. So, so how how
0: did you go from being a, a a child and a young man attending church into ministry. What was that transition and, and your training?
1: And uh, when was your call realized? Well, at age nine, I became a Christian at seven. At age nine, my pastor, Dr. Elijah Lee Alexander, made me uh, what they called then a junior
0: deacon.
1: And that has no authority with it. What it did was to position you so that you could be with the older men, the deacons who led this devotions, that is who opened up the services and um, who led the prayer meetings on Wednesday night. My daddy was a deacon. So I got a chance to sit up on the front row with him. My feet of course never touched the, the ground as I sit uh, in the pew. And when they got up to open up the morning service on Sunday morning, uh, then I got a chance to stand up with them. sometimes to read the scripture, sometimes to pray, sometimes to participate in the singing. Uh, That was important, it was part of my formation. Uh, Dr. Alexander insisted upon me, knowing the 24 articles of faith, verbatim, 24. What do you believe about creation? What do you believe about angels? What do you believe about the Bible? What do you believe uh, about grace? What do you believe about heaven and hell? I had to know that. Nine years of age, I had to know the Baptist Church and Covenant. Uh, I have believed, believe. I have and believe uh, by the Spirit of God to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal saving upon the profession of our faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, Son and Holy Ghost, we do now the presence of God and angels assembly uh, most solemnly and joyfully entering the company with one another as one body in Christ and on and on and on and on. I hadn't thought about that, but that's just in me. I had to know that at nine years of age. I was teaching the deacons class at 14. Hmm. I was having um, home Bible uh, study class uh, at 14, gathering chairs from the church and going and knocking on doors and having uh, persons in the community to come to our apartment, my mother and father, that's where we live, uh, and I taught Bible. I had no idea. That the terms I'm using, I had no, I didn't know the term evangelism. Yeah. I didn't know the term outreach. <laughs> I didn't know the term home Bible study uh, classes. Yeah, I just did it. I I had no idea what I was doing when I would go to the mother's board meeting and I would sit with the mothers and listen to them sing the old hymns. Mm -hmm. I had no idea God was forming me in terms of uh, biblical hymnology. Mm -hmm. And to go and gather bulletins from the churches in our community uh, and visit the convalescent centers, the nursing homes, because I wanted to be with the older people. Had no idea. These are from different churches. I didn't know them. I just felt a call to visit. Here I am, 14, 15 years of age, knocking on the door of the hospital of a woman that's 88 or a man that's 90 because I just wanted to pray with them. I didn't know what I was doing. Had no idea. And I don't say that arrogantly. I only say it because I'm amazed at how God was leading me and preparing me for what he was preparing me for. And so... I would teach, when it was allowed at that time, Bible courses in my high school. Mm -hmm. I never went to a prom, nothing wrong with going to a prom, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have time for going to proms. You know, God had called me and uh, I must be about my father's business. At age 27, I was called to pastor. So 17, I'm called to preach, 27, I'm called to pastor a church. And I pastored my home church uh, for, 20 years. Uh, eight years I served as the assistant pastor, so 28 years in that particular church. Then I went on to um, teach at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and now I've been at Beeson Divinity School in Birmingham, um, going into my 24th year. So that's, uh, that's kind of what it is about Robert Smith. Hmm. Awesome.
0: Really encouraging to hear about junior deacons and how uh, young boys were encouraged by the fathers uh, They sat amongst the older men, uh, learning God's word and, and, and being shown how to be godly men. So that's one of the things in the area where we live is fatherlessness. We have uh, some of the housing estates, uh, which uh, a bit like the projects in the States. We call them uh, housing estates where, where we live. <clears throat> Uh, up to 60% of households uh, are fatherless. Uh, I grew up in a fatherless home and I'm a first generation Christian. So I never grew up knowing how to be a man, never mind how to be a godly man. So hearing about these junior deacons is something exciting. And I'd love to see something like that within our churches for these young boys and men coming in. And uh, wow, that's just awesome. Just, I I never knew that junior deacons existed. That is uh, just so encouraging to me as, as a, as a first-generation Christian and ministering to many fatherless boys. I'd love to see that type of thing within within our church.
1: But you know, Ian, in our African-American culture, that was typical. Yeah. It's what we call, particularly preachers, fathers in the ministry,
0: mm-hmm. you know,
1: like there was a school uh, for the young prophets in the Old Testament.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, We had as young preachers, our Elijahs for the young Elishas Hmm. and our Pauls for the young Timothys and our Joshuas for the, um, the, our uh, Moses for the young Joshuas. It was just that way so that uh, we didn't know the word tutorial, but we were being tutored. We were being mentored. We didn't know that word. (laughs) It was always the older preacher who trained? We didn't have a, a, a lot of ministers necessarily mm. who had theological training mm. in our community. Not necessarily. When I say I'm talking about going to an established, accredited um, seminary or Bible college, mm. uh, men had to work, uh, and so. But it was those. It was those deacons. It was it was pastors like Dr. E. L. Alexander, my childhood pastor. Who trained me Mm. and who tutored me who stretched me who challenged me who confronted me who critiqued me who corrected me Mm. so much so that uh, the soil robert smith that the seed of that teaching was planted in has enabled me to grow um and without it i don't know where i would be Mm. awesome
0: yeah really encouraging because Many of the men, well, not many men from our communities become Christians anyway, uh, and very few go on to ministry training. And the odd people who, who do go on to seminary, all the seminaries are in the south of England. They usually move down south to train. They'll meet a nice southern girl and get married and never return north. So the right. the, the best method for us training up pastors is that exact method that you're talking about in-house within the church exactly in them in the church uh but unfortunately uh for progression within ministry usually uh, you're looking a lot of churches look for somebody who's been to seminary who has a theology degree and many of the qualifications for eldership uh seem to come secondary to the qualification from a seminary do you have similar problems within within the u.s where where a, a bachelor's or, an MA in divinity would seek higher than uh, the biblical qualifications.
1: How do you mean that? Help me to understand what you're saying.
0: Well, a lot of churches that I speak to, when they're looking to recruit pastors, uh, they, they want to find out what, what degree they've got, where they're trained. Uh, rather than if they're hospitable, and when was the last time you had somebody around your house for something to eat? So <laughs> the biblical qualifications seem to be an afterthought against the theological qualifications.
1: Yeah, that's unfortunate. I think that's true. I don't think it should be either or. I think it should be both and. Um, some of uh, John the Baptist didn't have a degree. Yeah, yeah. But Jesus says there's no one that's ever been born that's greater than John the Baptist. So um, I think if an individual has opportunity Mm -hmm. to be theologically educated, uh, that individual ought to do that Mm -hmm. Uh, as well as being hospitable Mm -hmm. as well as being serving the community. I mean, the greatest greatest title that anyone can have is the title of servant. Mm -hmm. That's the greatest title. That's what you want the Lord to say. In the end, well done, thy good and faithful, not doctor, not professor, but servant. And so when a person has an opportunity, not for the degree, but what the degree can do in terms of imparting greater knowledge to the people that this particular minister serves. So it's not about the degree, it's about being equipped that's exactly what uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 is talking about. All scriptures give our inspiration to God and it's profitable for doctrine, for proof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the people of God might be perfect, that is complete, thoroughly furnished in all good works to equip them, to equip others. That's what, that's what, what it's all about ultimately. And so if an individual can obtain greater knowledge so that that individual can import that knowledge, impart that knowledge, then that ought to be. That, I think that's great. But I, I would much rather have someone who has absolutely no education, but who has a heart for people, who loves people. That's what Jesus asked Peter: Do you love me? Then you feed my sheep. You demonstrate that it's the love for people. And if you really love people, then whether it's um, a correspondence course. Uh, over um, video or whatever, Mm -hmm. then because you love them, you want to give them the very best that you can give them, whether it's through theological education or not. Um, Far too many persons are theologically educated, but spiritually bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And that's not good because all you're doing is just appealing from the neck up. Mm -hmm. You're not going down to the head. Everything is cranial. Mm -hmm. None of it is cardiological. And when you change people, you don't change them informatively, you change them transformatively. Mm. That has to be a heart matter. And that's, um, that's what we need.
0: Yeah, and that, that leads me on to my uh, next question, which many of the uh, seminaries, uh, although they're technically open to people of all backgrounds, realistically, they're open only to those who can afford them or have the qualifications to get there in the first place. So many of people from our communities uh, don't have the qualifications, which would allow them to study a theology degree or get into the seminary. So within the UK, we tend to churn out the same type of people, usually the white middle-class academic, uh, generally from the South of England. So that then produces (laughs) Most pastors are are clones of uh, their teachers. It's like a a production line of white, middle-class, academic uh, Englishmen, which there's nothing wrong with that. But when that is the only preacher you've got, it sets uh, a subliminal message that if you're not white, middle-class or academic, then your place is in the pew and not in the pulpit. Do you have a similar problem within the U.S.? where you talked about uh, when you grew up, not many people had theological training. They had to uh, study in the church and work to uh, supplement their their pastoring. Now education has become available to more people. Do you feel you're losing something uh, from what you had when you grew up as a boy within the pastorate?
1: Well... Again, I don't think it's either or. Hmm. There's a difference uh, between being um, educated. Mm -hmm. You can be educated and yet in a way not be astutely informed. And this is what I mean by that. A person can be educated and understand systems, Lot of information, uh, it's all heady, it's all cranial. Mm-hmm. Person can be astu- astutely informed and see how the Bible, uh, is univocal, 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 one voice, how there is an interconnectivity, how there is redemptive history in it, how. There is a mosaic, a tapestry, how it fits together, and maybe never go to a seminary. Mm. While the other individual can give you the structure and all the technicalities, but doesn't uh, see the life that's in it. Mm. I mean, Khrushchev and other individuals who um, were. Um, uh, totalitarians, uh, ideologues, um, Hitler, you name it, can understand the, the outward external uh, makeup of the Bible. Like the Pharisees, search the scriptures, uh, John five thirty-nine. for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that testify of me. You don't see me in it. You search the scriptures, but the scriptures testify of me, and you don't see me. You don't you see elements about life, but you don't see the life giver. You don't see me, and here I am standing in the midst, telling you that before Abraham was, I am. And you're talking about you're not even fifty years old. I predate Abraham. I predate time. And so that's what I mean by that. Uh, a person can be um, intellectually um, educated, but not as astutely informed in terms of seeing um, what the Bible is all about. And the Bible is not is, is a, um, is, is a, a, a book about who, see, it's, 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 it's a whole book. It's a book about Christ. Mm -hmm. Pilate is asking in John 18, 38, what is truth? And Jesus, who is the truth, is standing right in front of him. Mm -hmm. What is truth? It is, not what is truth, who is truth? And I'm standing before you and you're dealing with a proposition. What is truth? Mm -hmm. I'm dealing with reality. I am truth. I am the way, the truth and the life. So I, I think with the internet, and information that is just oh, just um, replete in terms of our own exposure to it. There's no reason for a person not to be astute, astutely informed. Doesn't have to be um, educated in terms of a degree from a school, mm. but to be astutely informed with everything that's available. I mean, I've never met you before. Not that my sermons would mean anything, but now you learned about me, then you went to the internet and listened and whatever you heard, if the Lord used it, you got in touch with me, you're having a conversation. Mm -hmm. We've got that. So there's no reason for an individual not to know um, individuals that God is using in a great way, not to understand concepts of scripture and theology. You can study theology without having a theological degree because theology is just the word theology. Theologos means God talk. That's all it is. You're talking about God, you're thinking about God, that's it rather than somebody who has a theology degree who might talk about God but don't necessarily know God. So, yeah, I think that's important uh, for an individual to say, look, we're gonna be Bereans and we're gonna go home and we're gonna study these things to see whether or not what Paul said is so. You don't need a theology, a theology degree for that. Yeah. And every Christian, that's what Paul's. I want to present every man mature in Christ. So that's that's uh for me that's important that a person has a thirst for education yeah. and just devours every source. Um, that he or she can in order to be all he or she can be in Christ. Yeah.
0: And, and how, what, what would be your advice for people who uh, find that education, who find that knowledge, which uh, is so exciting, uh, the more information you find out about Jesus, uh, the, the, the more uh, doctrines you begin to understand, how do you keep that balance of the knowledge you're learning about Jesus, but keeping your personality within your preaching, where uh, sometimes I've been encouraged to tone down my personality. Uh, in, in England, many people think humor and emotion should be kept outside the pulpit, and a lot of preaching is encouraged to be more a lecture style, uh, then a passionate side and, and people talk about there not being a culture in the church but there is a very big culture in the UK church it's that it's not recognized because it's uh, the majority culture so so everyone who goes to church doesn't realize that the majority culture is is, is middle class uh, and academic whereas the working class people people from my background would probably relate more to your style of preaching uh, a lot of white working class man from the from the uk gravitate towards the african-american preaching because the narrative style of preaching the the imagery the passion uh, we find that more relatable than the the middle class preaching from the white english people Uh, so what do you think about personality and in your preaching and how do you keep that
1: well you use the word style Hmm. Um, are a demonstration of, of your presentation mm. that comes out of your own personality. Black preaching, African-American preaching, and no preaching actually, is monothili- monolithic. That is one type. Mm. That's what monolithic means. One stone, one type. So when you hear a Black preacher, you can't say, well, that's that's Black preaching because all black preachers are not the same Mm -hmm. in style. All white preachers are not the same in style. All Asian preachers are not the same in style. Mm -hmm. All um, uh, Latin preaching uh, is not the same in style. All uh, Native American preaching is not the same in style. Mm -hmm. You've got different styles in one type of preaching, you know, if you want to call it a type. So that means, the reason that's the case is because of the personalities of the preacher. Mm-hmm. Everyone has a personality. One of the reasons we struggle with what you just got finished saying is, mm-hmm. we're trying to produce cookie cutter preachers mm-hmm. so that everybody is modeling or trying to follow after the model of a certain kind of preacher that won't work. Listen to the definitions. Of two persons that we respect really well, one is Phillips Brooks, who was one of the two great orators uh, in American preaching in the 19th century, Anglican preacher Phillips Brooks. Uh, he did in his Lyman Beecher lecture series, he did uh, lectures that dealt with human personalities. For as the preacher, his classic definition of preaching is this: preaching is truth mediated or poured through the human personality of the preacher to the human personality of the people. The human personality of the preacher to the human personality of the people. So it is recognizing that the preacher has personality, not just intellect. See, we if we are honest about it, we are preaching as whole persons to whole persons, which means I am cognitive, mm, knowledge, I am affective, feeling, I am intuitive, reason in a hurry, I am physical, I am spiritual, all of that. I'm not just from neck up, cognitive, intellectual, no. God lets us know. That as a God, he is spirit. Hmm? He has emotions. He weeps. Hmm. Zephaniah 317, he rejoices over us with singing. Hmm. He becomes angry. Hmm. He is long-suffering. All of those things. He is not just an intellectual God he enters into a relationship with us he yearns for us particularly like the prodigal son's father did for the prodigal son yearning that he would return so if i take and preach from the neck from the neck down then in essence i become beheaded from the neck down i'm just preaching to the heart It's cardiological. I'm preaching for feeling. I'm preaching for affection. I'm preaching for emotion. That's being beheaded. Just preach from here down. But then I can preach from here up and I become big headed. I'm preaching only to give you information and knowledge. I don't want you to feel anything. I don't want you to experience emotion at all. Here's the other preacher, not just uh, 19th century. This was, That was Phyllis Brooks, but Haddon Robinson, who recently went to be with the Lord, 20th century and uh, part of the 21st century. In his book, Biblical Preaching, which has uh, been around now for 81, 40 years, he defines biblical preaching, expository preaching as the communication of an idea or concept that's derived from scripture and transmitted through a grammatical, historical, and literary, uh, uh, literary form in a passage in context which the Holy Spirit first applies, listen to this, which the Holy Spirit first applies to the life and person and experience of the preacher and his personality and then to the hearers. So it applies to me first, it comes to me first and goes through me to others, through my personality. Your personality is different than mine, like a snowflake, like a fingerprint, none the same. So for me to deny my personality in terms of my preaching, is to deny what God has given me. Uh Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk, says there are two kinds of selves, selves, S-E-L-V-E-S. Number one, there is the projected self. That is the self that we want other people to see. We put our best foot forward so that we're always the heroes and the heroines of our illustrations. Uh People never see Our scars, they see our stars. They see our heights, they never see our depths. We -hmm. hold everything in. That's a projected self. Mm -hmm. And the Trappist monk, Thomas uh, Merton says, that's hypocrisy. And God cannot have a relationship with hypocrisy. Mm -hmm. But then there's a real self. The self that you let out, Mm -hmm. that's transparent that's revealed, that's on display. So the people see you as a real human being, a Jesus who could speak and the winds will go back to the four corners of the earth and a Jesus who can lie down in the boat and go to sleep because he was tired. Ah, so that, that, that's important to be able to not force your personality, but allow it to be seen. This is what Paul says in Romans 12 and 2. He says, but be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the doing of your mind. Clarence Jordan, who was a PhD in Greek from the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in normal Kentucky, writes a paraphrase of the New Testament called the cotton patch version of the English Bible. It's a paraphrase. This is how he paraphrases Romans 12 and two, instead of saying, be not conformed to this world. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. What I'm saying to you and to me and to all of us, don't let any culture squeeze you into its mold. So you have to fit them and be um, uh, disingenuous, to who you really are. No, mm-hmm. I want to preach in light of the eschaton. Mm-hmm. According to Romans 5, 9, Revelation 5, 9, 7, 9, people from every nation tribe, kindred and tongue, mm-hmm. unity in the midst of diversity. Mm-hmm. Not everybody the same, still multi-ethnicity. So I've discovered this, that when I preach in churches, that are di- whether people are different, whether it's Hispanic or Latino or Native American. I've been in the Jewish temple to preach and other places as well. That's different. I realize that the spirit is greater than the soil I stand in. When I say soil, I mean white soil, brown, yellow, or red soil. Mm-hmm. Spirit, spirit is greater than that. And if I would be who I am, people expect me to be a black preacher, whatever their perception is. That for me to come and try to be anything else than that. So I'm gonna to try to be like this preacher, that preacher, that's you know, that that is totally different than um than I am in order to get accepted. They'll say he's a phony. That's a hypocrite. That's not it. No. When they invite me, they say, we listen to him, he's black, mm-hmm. And there's something about his blackness that's gonna come out, we expect that. Mm. I'm gonna preach the way God gives me and the thing that counts is not my style, ultimately. Mm. It's my substance. Mm. If I will give attention, meticulous attention to the text, I don't care how you present it, uh, dear Eon, whether you sing the text, whether you lecture the text, mm. Uh, whether you stomp when you preach, doesn't make any difference. Whether you read the manuscript word for word, whether you preach with an outline or preach without anything in terms of, 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 uh, of notes, that doesn't matter. What matters is, have you dealt precisely with that text? And the gospel will save you whether you sing it or lecture it. Doesn't matter. So be who you are And don't try to change the culture, Mm. change the people by the word in the culture. Mm. And then you'll have a multi-ethnic climate, climate, which I think is healthy. And we will get, we will begin to appreciate each other for our differences because we want to be different to make a difference. Mm. And then anticipate the kingdom of God, which would be a multi-ethnic. Awesome. Exciting, yeah. And Ephesians,
0: uh, Ephesians three is what uh, uh, excites me. That that final, uh, how now that uh, even the angels are, are shocked at what God is doing, bringing Jew and Gentile together, and uh, that is something that I'm longing to see. It's it's a lot slower than <laughs> than I'd like to see it, but uh, yeah. And and to see more people. Uh, from the backgrounds uh, that we're not seeing in the pulpit, I think at the moment the the pulpit, I don't know what it's like in America, but in the UK it, it's very monocultural, uh, not just with ethnicities but class and, and and things like that. And the problem is a lot of people from my background and I did it myself try and assimilate because not just because of the pressure off the people who want you to assimilate probably a bit out of paranoia and envy, but also some of the people I tried to emulate because I liked them. It wasn't, there were more middle class than me, but you start assimilating to people who you respect. It's not it's not just a negative thing. It can be... A, a, of course. A, 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 so how how have you always managed to do that then? Is, is it because of... Uh, do, you th- do you think that is because of the the upbringing you had because of the security you had in who you were as a preacher by uh, the affirmation from your pastor and from your father growing up in the church. Do you think that has helped you in your ministry to stay grounded and and remain who you are? Yeah, it it has. But I
1: I think that you only find yourself
0: Mm -hmm.
1: by uh, trying to find yourself. In other words, you only know who you are by recognizing who you aren't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So all of us, if we're honest, will say there were preachers that we've heard and we liked them a lot. Mm-hmm. And some of us will be honest enough to say, and we tried to be exactly like them.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I tried to be like my pastor because he was such George Q. Brown. This is another pastor, mm-hmm. because he was such a tremendous presenter mm-hmm. and a tremendous deliverer of sermons. But I didn't have the voice, the vocality. And I they have a number of the other things he had. So I tried that, no, that's not me. No, that's not me, not. that's not me. I admired them and I tried to imitate them. But by finding out who I was not, I finally discovered who I was. That's what liberated me. And I recognized that God had not shortchanged me by giving me what he gave me instead of giving me what he gave others. That was exciting for me, Mm -hmm. that what God gave me liberated me so that I was satisfied with my own gift. Mm -hmm. And I maximized what I had and who I was instead of trying to become someone that I was not. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's important, It's trial and error. And that's what will happen. You can admire people Mm -hmm. and you can identify with people instead of imitating people. And if you imitate someone, then what you're doing is shortchanging yourself. Uh, and you'll never, ever, ever find freedom uh, because that person you're imitating is going to grow and become even better. That means you you got to go up another rung or two of the ladder. And you never get there. Never. Yeah. And you're satisfied. Yeah.
0: Yeah. What, about, what about preaching with passion and, and, and vulnerability? I, I sometimes weep when I'm preaching I, I, it's something that I don't like and I get angry about it, it, it happens I can rehearse the sermon several times and it, it's not until I'm preaching it that it, it hits my heart and, and, I, and I might weep uh, some people uh, find that encouraging other people think that I'm having a mental breakdown. <laughs> what, what do you feel about vulnerability in, in the pulpit? Uh, how, how vulnerable should a preacher be? How much, you mentioned before about not being the hero of the illustrations. Uh, how much should you show your vulnerability and weakness within your illustrations, do you think?
1: You, you don't show vulnerability. You mm. give in to it. You are vulnerable. Mm. The gospel makes you vulnerable. You don't stand on the text, Robert Smith. You stand under the text. For every text I preach, I have not lived out perfectly. Hmm. I'm always falling short and grace is helping me to attain to the stature and the fullness of Christ. I'm not there yet. I'm undergoing sanctification, which is progressive. I have not reached glorification, which is final in eternity. So, if you will preach with personality, human personality that God gave you, you're going to be vulnerable. Why does why? Because you're not just neck up; your head down. It's all the way. It's all the way down. Um, Jeremiah. Well, let me just say this. We've been sold um, a bad, um, a bad, um, we've been sold false goods. Real men don't cry. And yet you hear Jeremiah that is thought of in terms of Jesus. Jesus asked the disciples in Matthew 16, who do men say that I, the son of man am? And some say, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. That's pretty good for a Jeremiah to be considered in the same light as Jesus. Listen to Jeremiah in Jeremiah nine verse one. Oh, that my head were waters. In my eyes, a fountain of tears, I would weep day and night for the daughter of my people. The weeping prophet. And Jesus was moved with compassion as he saw sheep scattered without a shepherd. And in Luke 19 verse 40, and Jesus wept, over the walls of Jerusalem. Mm. And when we get to heaven, Revelation 21 and four, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. If you can keep from weeping, then what you're doing is in essence, closing the pop-off vow that God has given you for rejoicing and entering into of uh, the personality of that text, because every text has a personality. What are you going to do with the text um, where you hear God saying through Peter in 1 Peter 3 and 9, uh, God is not slack concerning his promises, as some people count slackness, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Did you feel that that it it, it, it hurts God He doesn't rejoice. It hurts God that some people will be lost and rejected off of salvation. Every text has a personality, has an emotion. When you sit down and you look at a text and that text gets you, it may get you when you're in the pulpit. It's what we call a delayed reaction where you can take like a medicine. You take medicine, And it doesn't have its effect until later on. Mm. You look at that text, you get it down in terms of your exegetical work, all that. Then when you get up to preach and you start dealing with it, it gets you. And you must not grieve the spirit. Mm. When the spirit is moved upon, moving upon you, you must not grieve it. Because tears are language that God understands and tears represent liquid love. And you hear Paul saying in Romans 8, 26 and 27, that the spirit makes intercession for us with sighs, groans, that are too so deep for one. He groans for us and we can't groan when we preach. You got to feel this thing, not just understand it. You got to feel it. And sometimes you can't complete, sometimes the most powerful moments in our preaching comes through broken sentences or interruptions where we can't say what we want to say. So when Paul goes from chapter one, Romans verse one, to chapter 11, verse 32, piling up prodigious mountains of doctrine, he gets as far as he can. And the next word in verse 33 is, oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways of past finding out. That word, oh he starts singing. He's been giving you doctrine. He's talked about pneumatology, doctrine of the spirit. He talked about Christology, he talked about theology, he talked about justification, redemption, sanctification. He talked about all that. Then he says, Oh, you got to get to that point. But mm-hmm. you have an old moments, where you start feeling the significance of the grace of God, mm-hmm. and sometimes all you can do is just wave your hand, mm-hmm. and people can understand sign language. That means I'm full. <laughs> I can't express what I'm feeling, mm-hmm. and so your tears will say for you what your tongue cannot say. Mm-hmm. You don't hold that back. I know people think, well, showing your emotions is non-intellectual, Then Jesus was not intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't want you to show emotions because they, they think uh, that when you use emotion, you're trying to manipulate people. Mm-hmm. All that stuff, uh-uh. no. You don't manipulate people so much with tears. You manipulate people when you are committing malpractice in terms of how you use that text, that's mm. how you manipulate them. Yeah, tears can be sincere, or they can be insincere. Mm. But what 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 is the greatest um, act of manipulation is eisegesis, That is putting into the text what was never meant to be there, yes. in order that you want to, in order for us to persuade them to do what we want them to do, rather than what the text says they must do
0: yeah definitely yeah yeah oh you know, really inc- this is like three years of, of preaching training in in one session <laughs> i'm sorry oh, no
1: we're just talking son that's all
0: <laughs> do, do you have time for a couple more questions or... that's what i'm here for awesome oh brilliant so again one of one of your most encouraging uh, sermons that i listened to was one where you uh, shared about a family tragedy and uh, you use that in an illustration and uh, I I just wondered how can uh, as a pastor and as a preacher uh, I've encountered a couple of tragedies I've only been a pastor since uh, 2013 uh, and I had to preach a a couple of days after my father-in-law died and it was a real struggle And and I just wondered how can you remain faithful uh, to your preaching when you're going through a family tragedy or facing fear? What is it that gets you through?
1: Number one, don't don't preach the crisis. Mm. Preach Christ, Mm -hmm. who will give you what you need to deal with the crisis. Don't preach the issue preach Christ that's really important um don't preach about the storm preach through it preach through the storm not about the storm why is that important if you preach about the storm there are three ways of getting through this storm there are ten ways No, no 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 talk about Jesus what did he do in a storm Number one, he knew a storm was going to break out. Number two, he slept in the midst of the storm. Number three, he dismissed the storm. Peace be still. You talk about how he dealt with it. He didn't deny it. He knew it, and he was prepared for it. Now, if I'm honest, I have to admit, Jesus is right. John 16, In this world, not you may have tribulation or you could have tribulation, or you might have tribulation. In this world, you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've already overcome the world and because I've overcome, you, you, you'll you be able to overcome. I have to, I cannot preach a prosperity theology. I must preach an adversity theology. What we need is an adversity theology, not prosperity, because prosperity in terms of theology alone is not reality. John 16, you're going to have it. You're not going to be protected from crisis. They will come, but you'll be kept in the midst of crises. It's not getting out of trouble, but it's what you get out of trouble. That is what you get by way of lessons, what you're dealing with in terms of Hannah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What he will do is keep Hannah in the midst of the storm and sustain her. And he's able to heal her so that she can and you can testify with greater faith. Our God is sovereign mm-hmm. over anything, land, sea, and above the earth and even under the earth. God is able to do that. So I think that's important for you to preach through it mm-hmm. because people are going to listen to you preach while you're going through your crisis. Mm-hmm. You've been saying all of this about faith and about trust. The Lord, Psalm 27 one, is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Oh, no, 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 no. And then your time comes Mm -hmm. and they're going to see did Pastor Williamson really believe what he was preaching? Is he acting like it now? Or was that just preached during the days of the sunshine? How does he preach and how does he live this out during the rain? Mm. And that's where your testimony becomes convincing. I've had God ask me during moments of crisis, do you really believe what you've been preaching? Hmm. Or do you just have a fair weather gospel? Yeah. And people watch you. You're not trying to prove anything, it's in you. You know, as has been stated, when you get to the bottom, you can say, I've been to the bottom and I found out that it's solid. It's solid. Mm-hmm. What I've been preaching is real. God is God, God is who he said he was, and he is. And I can trust him, no matter what I'm feeling and experiencing. There's another thing. You got to believe it even before the crisis. You don't prepare for war during the time of war. You prepare for war during the time of peace, What you do. You don't take your umbrella out just when it's raining. You listen to the meteorological report and the the weather prognosticators say it's going to rain around 12. Well, you only get off to five. That means if you believe it, you take your umbrella. When the sun is shining and at 12 noon, it starts raining. So when you get ready to go out, you got an umbrella. Oh, I left my umbrella at home. You didn't believe it. Oh, you take it before the rain comes, mm. That you do. So preach through the storm, mm-hmm. preach before the storm, preach in the storm, that's what you do. So that, uh, and sometimes what you have to do and what I have to do is to preach to myself. Mm. When there is no crowd, nobody around, I have to preach to myself. I have to talk to myself. You know, uh, in God talks to himself. Sovereign soliloquy, self-conversation. Mm-hmm. Let us make man. God says, "Let us go down and confuse that language." God says, mm-hmm. "Whom shall I send? Who will go for us?" God is talking to Himself, mm-hmm. and if God can talk to Himself, and I follow Him, mm-hmm. then I can talk to myself. Robert, do you really believe what you believe? Isn't God able? I know it's tough right now, Robert. But God will bring you through. As David says, and first of all, well, what's said about David, 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, he encouraged himself in the Lord. What you gotta do? You got to encourage yourself, Robert Smith and Ian Williamson, in the Lord. When nobody else is around, you gotta encourage yourself. And I'm talking to myself right now. I really am. I gotta encourage myself because I'm going through crisis in my family.
0: Mm-hmm
1: that god will bring um your loved one through yeah Yeah. awesome thank you brother
0: so just just before you go uh just share with me quickly who who has been your uh, encouragement in preaching over the years and when you were feeling low when uh Sometimes if preaching to yourself isn't enough, <laughs> who's you go-to pastor or preacher to encourage
1: you in the word of God? It's a great word. Oh, my goodness, so many. Sometimes they came on the stage of our life uh, to disappear and be seen no more. Just a one-time appearance yeah. that God sent. But uh, three persons in particular. One, my childhood pastor, Dr. Elijah Lee Alexander Mm -hmm. from Pine Bluff, Arkansas. I was saved under his ministry. Mm -hmm. He was the one when I felt like giving up as a 20 year old preacher, not a pastor yet. Mm -hmm. I went up to the place where he was and gave him a note um, written by hand, by my hand saying, that I was leaving the ministry and I got in my car and jumped in my car real fast before he could read. It was an envelope sealed. He found me and came to my place. He found, I was married then, young pastor, young, young preacher, he found me and encouraged me. I was in the Jeremiah state given my resignation. I said, I would not speak anymore in his name. That was me. He was the one when I was uh, 19 years of age, and I preached at his church. He was now pastoring a different church, the Shiloh Baptist Church in Newark, N-E-W-A-R-K, Ohio, which is uh, not far from our state's capital, state capital, which is Columbus. And I was preparing to preach to his youth. It was what they called Youth Sunday. I was 19, and I was preaching from John uh, chapter 8, I believe it is 8, verse 12. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. You see? And that's what I was going to preach. I had uh, stayed up all night preparing my sermon. It was, a, it was a Saturday night. All night. Didn't sleep. All morning. And he evidently, I didn't sleep some either, because when I went past his door to go to the restroom, he was reading that morning. I don't know. It could have been three or four in the morning. Breakfast time came, so I sat down at breakfast with him and his wife. Um, yeah, I wasn't married then. Breakfast, I was 19. Years. And uh, he asked me, he called me Bobby. He said, Bobby, you finished with your sermon? I said, uh, yes, sir. I was very proud, very, very proud that I stayed up all night. He said, where's your sermon, Bobby? I showed it to him. 50 pages. I had 20 minutes to preach now. 50 pages written on a legal pad. He says, Is that your sermon, Bobby? I said, Yes, sir. Well, I had taken this pulpit commentary and I had written all this stuff from John 8, 12.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, you're the light of the world. And um, um uh, let's see. Uh no, I am the light of the world. That's Jesus said that. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Yeah, that is 516 is you're the light of the world in Matthew. Okay, so he took my 50-page manuscript. This is what he did to every page. 50 pages. Every page. Every page. When he got to the 50th page, he tore that up. Then he says, now, Bobby, go get your sermon. I had an hour to be dressed to go to church. (laughs) And what he was saying to me was this. This is not your sermon. These are some notes. You don't have this in you. He asked me this question. He says, now, Bobby, if you need 50 pages to say what you need to say in your sermon, and you've written it down, how in the world do you expect the people who haven't heard it or written a word to remember any of it? He was saying, get the sermon in you. He was not against using notes. He preached from manuscript. That wasn't it. Mm-hmm. He was saying, turn the ink that's written on these pages into the blood of your life. Mm-hmm. Let it get in you. Now, of course, I didn't like it, but I couldn't let him know that because he was an old timer. He would have uh, applied um, some pressure to, this, to the application of my uh, backside, <laughs> So I didn't do. It. Uh, but he taught me something and that was internalize your message, brood over it, struggle with it, get it into you know it, whether you use an outline notes, all, let it go through you. It didn't go through me. I just wrote it on paper, piece of paper. So that he challenged me and go on and on and on about him. The other two persons, George Q. Brown, I love because of his delivery, passion. If he preached before hundreds of people, or as I saw him one time, I went with him, we drove about 200 and something, maybe 300 miles for him to preach at night. And there could not have been 10 people there. And he preached as if there were 10,000 people there because the crowd, that's not what lit his passion. The word led his passion, and his love for the Lord led his passion because he was there to represent the Lord, and he did not want to dis- disappoint the Lord. So I'm up here for these ten people. I'm gonna give them everything I have. It made no made no difference how many were there, and that was not it. So that 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 touched me. If he could do this, as great of a preacher as he he uh, was, how can I hold back and not give my Lord? and the people I'm preaching to everything I had. So it was his passion. The other one, E.L. Alexander, it was his correctiveness. But the third person is James Earl Massey. That's my last one. It was his example, holistically, his life. He lived it out. He and his wife were pregnant five times. There were five miscarriages. He never complained. He lived out what he preached. He was an excellent scholar. He was, he was everything to me. He went to be with the Lord three years ago, June the 24th, 2018, and I miss him tremendously. Uh, But uh, those three persons, uh, E.L. Alexander, George Q. Brown, James Earl Massey,
0: Awesome. And just before you go, do you have any advice for young preachers like myself? Uh, Yeah. If you had one piece of advice, what would you give to younger preachers?
1: Well, I would say, number one, wait on the wind. And what I mean by that is be a sailboat. When I say the wind, I'm talking about Old Testament, the Ruach, Holy Spirit, New Testament, the Numa, Holy Spirit. A sailboat without any wind Mm -hmm. is just there. Mm -hmm. It's when the sails envelop the wind that the sailboat moves. Mm -hmm. Wait on the Spirit, the wind of the Spirit. Zechariah 4 and 6 is not by might nor by power, but it is by my Spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Ephesians 5 and 8. Keep on being filled with the Spirit. Let your sails be engulfed with the wind. You can't do it, no matter how smart you are, preacher, whoever you are, no matter what your delivery style may be. That doesn't do it. It's not by your might, not by your power, but it's by His Spirit. So let us. Let the wind of the spirit fill your sails. That's how you move. That's how you affect it. Not your education. Fine, but you. let's not it. Second of all, make sure you stop and pick up a towel and a basin and fill it up with water so you can wash the feet of other people. As a servant, never forget that you are a servant above everything else. You are sent to serve people, to minister to the people. You're not just sent to stand up on Sunday morning and preach the gospel and ignore the folk doing we. Oh no, if Jesus could wash the feet of the disciples, that is get in between their toes, all that toe jam, those bunions, the corn, this is, this is the God who stoops To serve, but I can't serve people because you say, I'm not a people person. Then you need to be out of the ministry. That's what it's about. It's about serving people. As Jesus would say uh, in that 10th chapter of Mark, I believe it is, it is, verse 46 through 48. I did not come to be served. I came to serve. And to give my life a ransom for many. So those are the things I you know I would I would say. Make sure you wait on the wind and let the wind fill your sails if you want to be effective in ministry. And please stop by and pick up a basin with a towel, fill it up with some water so that you can serve people. Awesome.
0: Uh, gold dust. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much, Dr. Uh, Robert Smith Jr. Uh, This is, I could spend another two hours, but I know you're a very busy man. But I do appreciate you joining me on the In Context podcast. Thank you very much, brother.
1: Then enjoy, buddy.